My good people, greetings. How are we? What's going on? Are we feeling okay? Weekend was good. Day and week off to a great start. I hope that's the case because I am in a terrible sports mood. Certainly not feeling it. Although I am ready to go here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. So let's get right to it. I am your host, J Reels. For those listening for the very first time, I want to welcome you guys aboard. Thank you very much for downloading and listening to this content. And for those who've been with me on this podcast journey from episode one to now 68, it is official. I could honestly say, without further ado, this is episode 68. I welcome you guys back as I discuss everything that's happening in the sports landscape, which there's much to cover here on a Monday, May the 6th in the year of our Lord 2019. And what is on tap for this episode? We'll get into the controversy of the Kentucky Derby, everything that had transpired in Churchill Downs on a slick, wet surface where we had one winner and then 22 minutes later had another. So I'll dive into that. I'll also get into a little bit of the Canelo-Daniel-Jacobs fight. Now, I didn't watch that either, but I have some things to say, not only in reference to that, but on the sport on the whole, and I'm opening my mind and my heart to act, to even thinking about Coming back to watch the sport says a lot because I have certainly abandoned the sport at, at least for 15 years. So we'll touch on that. The Mets and how this is looking like 2018 all over again. Yes, I'll dive into the Mets. Yankees are doing well. They're actually losing more players, but they're getting some back as they have a very competitive week that lies ahead. I'll also put a final touch, an epitaph on the 2018 2019 New York Islanders and how they just, what could you say? You went from the ecstasy of a opening round sweep against the hated Pittsburgh Penguins to the agony of a four round sweep at the hands of the Carolina Hurricanes. I tell you, it just doesn't get any worse than that, but uh, we'll certainly take a look and dive into that as well. But we're going to kick off this program discussing the NBA. And before we get into a fascinating, probably one of the more fascinating playoff nights that you're going to have in the NBA, at least in the last God knows how many years. And this is barring, we're not talking about the finals. Of course, the finals, we look at that as the ultimate championship round. We get that. But before we uh, certainly pick that apart, where you have two critical game fours in Boston and in Houston. So far, this second round is certainly living up to what the first round didn't. And you could go at it so many different ways and so many different storylines, etc. We could talk about Denver's resiliency, especially after what happened Friday night in Portland when you had a game four that seemed to go on forever. Four overtimes to be exact, where the Trailblazers prevailed, had a two games to one lead with game four in their building last night. And when you look at the top players in the league, the one guy that certainly gets overlooked and is underrated Granted that he plays in a mountain time zone on a team that a lot of people certainly don't follow. But when you have a guy who's a center, not a point guard, not a wing player. But when Nikola Jokic comes out with a triple-double on fumes, had to leave the game with cramps or with a knee issue, it seems. It's not cramps. A lot of people thought it was cramps at first, but then they said it's a knee. But he's going to be raring to go. Tomorrow night for a game five. For the Nuggets who, let's face it, they had to scratch, claw, do whatever it takes to win a first round against the Spurs. And for them to 
now get the home court back in their favor for the guys out west that look at the Golden States and the Houstons and uh, to a certain extent even Portland based on the heroics of Damian Lillard in the previous round against OKC. Nobody is thinking that the Denver Nuggets, mind you, they were two seed in the Western Conference, didn't think that they would either get this far, let alone get to the point where they would reclaim home court and now certainly have their sights set on winning this round and playing in a conference final for the first time since 2009. That's what you have with the Nuggets, and give them all the credit. Jamal Murray is another guy that flies under the radar who's performed well. And here they are just two, you know, 48 hours ago. A lot of people thought, well, this is it. Denver's no way they're going to come back. Now, granted that Portland in the war of attrition on Friday night, they certainly had to play yesterday and fought well, played hard. But Denver, for whatever the reason, I don't know if you want to attribute it to their coach, Mike Malone. I don't know if you want to attribute it to just them taking the whole day off on Saturday, which I believe Portland did as well. But when you have a team that was on the ropes in the way the Nuggets were, and mind you, losing in a quadruple overtime game, one of the longest games in NBA history, let alone playoff history, for them to be able to bounce back the way they did, to me that's one storyline that now we got to see how far they go, but could this be a rallying point for the team moving forward as they go deeper into this postseason they may look at what took place last night in Portland as the turning point. Now, granted, they still have plenty of basketball to be played. I think that series is going to go seven games. Why would you think not? And I tell you, this second round has been so fascinating from so many different standpoints. I understand Portland-Denver is not the sexy matchup, despite the fact that they're a 2-3 matchup. But when we bring it back east, then you look at what happened yesterday afternoon in Philadelphia. Now, this one we could spend 10 podcasts on because you have a Toronto Raptor team that certainly did not play exceptionally well in games two or three, for that matter, in Philadelphia. And then yesterday, it was the Kawhi Leonard show with the supporting cast finally contributing, whether it was Marcus Gasol, Kyle Lowry, which a lot of people thought he was going to be on the side of a milk carton considering he has not performed well this postseason. But it was all Kawhi. The type of performance that they certainly needed to, hey, I'm taking this team on my back and we're going back up north, even at 2-2, and take control of this series where now they have the home court for the rest of this round. And as much as I want to get, and you have to give Toronto credit, you know, nobody thought that after the game on Thursday night where they got blitzed with Joel Embiid's 33 points, Final was, what, 115.99. They were flying high. And all you thought was, oh, geez, is Philly going to win this in five? Or are they going to win this in six? Because everybody thought in their right mind that they were going to win yesterday. But here's the one thing about this Philly team that you cannot trust. And I've said, I'm not going to say I've said this time and time again, but if you've listened to this podcast, you well know that this Sixer team, as talented as they are, they're also an enigma. And I get that. When you have a surplus of talent that you do, especially with your starting five, and you have to balance and maneuver not only just the egos on this team, but also the talent, and make sure that 
this team's going to click on a hole. But let's face it, as talented as they are, it doesn't seem that this group of people or this group of players are the right fit. And I'll explain this way. You have a point guard who, as we all know, in transition is deadly. I understand he's not a freight train as far as LeBron James is concerned or even a Russell Westbrook for that matter. But Ben Simmons, for as big as he is, he has a very fluid and finesse game. And obviously when he's on the open court and his vision, his passing, etc., is second to none. But the thing is, is that if it's not in transition and in the half court, to me he's rendered useless. As we all know, he has no shot. We get that. He can't shoot a jumper to save his life. And you would think that going back to last year, after losing to the Celtics in the first round, the first thing he would have been doing is shooting jumpers in the gym. You have a guy in Joel Embiid who I said the other day, and I'm going to say it again loud and clear for everybody, and I'm sure people aren't going to like this. It's going to be unpopular, but let's face facts. Joel Embiid, slowly but surely, in front of our eyes, is becoming Dwight Howard 2.0. And before people start going off the rails and saying, Jay Reels, you're nuts. How could you compare this guy to Dwight Howard, so on and so forth? Well, as we all know, Dwight Howard, in the first few years of his career, was not only an all-NBA player, he was a top two, top three, top five player in the league, which Joel Embiid is arguably right now. But when you look at what happened Tuesday, and okay, Tuesday he had to get IV. He did not perform well. He wasn't able to be himself. Okay, I get that. All right, the score sheet was uh, very pale in comparison to what he did in game three. And now game three, of course, there was this uprising of sorts, 33 points. He's over here flying around like an airplane. He's putting the ear, his hand to the ear, a la Allen Iverson, to the crowd. I hate to say it, but Joel Embiid is a front-running player in that regard. Because the old saying... Before Peyton Manning won his first Super Bowl, where Peyton Manning could play in a tuxedo, when the game is clean, when nobody's touching him, when the perfect conditions, we all know how great of a quarterback he is. When the game starts getting dirty and ugly and in the trenches and he's getting knocked around, forget it. To me, this is what I'm seeing in Joel Embiid. And Dwight Howard was that same type of player. Go back and look. Smiling to the crowd, him with his Superman persona. Not only that, but also trying to not necessarily intimidate, but he floats in and out of these games where you kind of wonder, wait, is this the all-pro 28 points, 18 boards, 5 blocks player? Or is it the guy that just seems to be his head's in the cloud somewhere and you're not getting that dominant performance that you once did? And that's Joel Embiid. Because if you go from 33 points on Thursday night and granted, he wasn't feeling well a couple nights before, then what were you doing from Thursday night to yesterday where he had Ivy inserted at 6 a.m., texted his coach saying that he may not even play in a game where the Sixers could put a stranglehold on the series? And I get it that he's not feeling well, but what did he do from Thursday night to Sunday morning where he's under the weather? What is he eating? Is he hanging out? Now, there's already been questions about him and his diet, his conditioning, things of that nature, but you got to lay off the meat and the dairy, my guy. 
And you would think that after that game, when you saw Embiid in his glory, and we understand all the front-running stuff when you're up by 18 and 20, the things that you're going to do. And then yesterday, of course, he was nowhere to be found. 11 points, 2 for 7 from the field. It was a disgrace. And I don't want to hear, oh, well, he was sick, he wasn't feeling, well, then he shouldn't have played. And that would have been a whole set of encyclopedias with his teammates, but he played and he was pathetic. And then you have Jimmy Butler, who's a very good wing player. He's not a max player by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a veteran presence on his team, which that team desperately needs. But Butler just got here three hours ago. And Butler, who knows, he may be thinking halfway out the door, considering that he's going to be an impending free agent. And then Tobias Harris, who's a guy who has length and certainly has a lot of ability. But when you look at his stat line yesterday, and pretty much for the postseason, I mean, he hasn't been stellar. But yesterday, 2 for 13 from 3, he had a pathetic game. And then Ben Simmons, as I said from the, you know, from the top, here's a guy that's a walking triple-double. But if you heard my podcast a few weeks ago when they lost that game 1 to the Nets, and I even said then, that if Ben Simmons is going to have these performances like he had yesterday, 10-5-4, where, let's face it, in that fourth quarter, he was nowhere to be found. Yes, you found him on the court. But as far as doing anything productive, negative. He might as well have been sitting on the bench for the whole fourth quarter. Because he absolutely brings nothing. He's like having that offensive player, or better yet, he's like having that defensive player that's on the court that's invaluable, but when you get to the offensive side of the court, it's five on four. For instance, like a guy like Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace, you know that he needs to be on the floor late in games in a close game, but you're never going to go to him for offense. Never. So now you have a situation where the Sixer team, for as talented as they are, they don't seem to mesh. They don't seem to be on the same page. A lot of that has to do with coaching, and you know I'm not a big fan of Brett Brown. No, no offense to the guy. I'm sure he's a nice guy. He's brought this team through the process, but the process has arrived. It's here. It's, it's, that's it. The process is done. Now it's time to produce. And be that as it may, yesterday with the health of Embiid and Simmons' inability to put the ball in the basket, and Tobias Harris, now these finally feeling the pressure of what it's like to play in the Northeast. You know, this isn't the, isn't L.A. anymore. This isn't Detroit. This isn't any of the other places that he's played prior to this. Orlando. This is a whole new set of encyclopedias, as I like to say. So now you have a situation where Philly is down 0-2 and they face a critical Game 5 tomorrow night. Now, as far as the two games that we look ahead and one that includes the Boston Celtics, And this Celtic team right now needs a boost. They need a jolt. And they may get that tonight in a one Marcus Smart, who is due to be back in the lineup after being out with the injury that he had. And a lot of people thought it was a four- to six-week injury, and here it is three weeks later. Now, is he coming back too soon? Is he trying to be a hero, knowing that this team is down 2-1 and certainly could be on life support if they don't come up with a victory tonight? Well, that remains to be seen. But the fascinating thing about this is that will the Celtics be able to, I'm not going to say flick the switch or turn it on, but will Marcus Smart's participation, will his 
just him being in the lineup, is that going to be enough for tonight for them to prevail even the series and bring this series back to Milwaukee tied 2-2? Because sometimes that's all it takes. You know, Horford is a guy, when you look at game one, and as much as he's a glue guy, but he has a lot of miles. I understand he doesn't have a ton of playoff miles, but let's face it. Going back to his days in college, the two championships, nine years in a league in Atlanta, and now these last couple here in Boston. And you can only expect Al Horford to do so much. And you don't have any of the guys in that lineup that are going to come off the bench or they're going to give that spark or uplift the team as if you watch the Celtic games over the years, especially in the, on their network ups, uh, up north where Tommy Heinsohn likes to use those Tommy points for hustle, taking charges, the 50-50 balls on the court. You know, those type of plays where Marcus Smart generally is in the middle of all that stuff. So now, him back, being back in the lineup, not having any of the guys, Jason Tatum's not going to do that, Jalen Brown's not going to do that, certainly Gordon Hayward's not going to do that. The only guy that does that is Marcus Smart. Is that going to be enough? It certainly remains to be seen. We all know they're going to need to defend Giannis. Giannis was pretty much able to do whatever he, he wanted. And as we look back in these last two games, the third quarter has just been gloom and doom for the Celtics. They had that 12-0 run late in the third quarter on Friday night, which pretty much, I'm not going to say sealed the game, but they took control. Celtics tried to cut the lead. They couldn't, and they were able to prevail at that point moving forward. And when you look at game two, forget about it. As close as it was at the half, they just pretty much ran him out of the building there in that third quarter, and they ran off and hid, and next thing you know, not only were they back in the series, but they have a two-games-to-one lead and certainly have a chance to put their foot on the Celtics' throats tonight here in a pivotal game four. It's going to be fascinating to see. I said this last week. I know that the NBA, as much as they know that one of these two teams aren't going to be here, at the end of the day or once the series is over. But it would be something that if the Celtics do lose tonight, this second round is going to take a little bit of a blow. Because when you look at Denver, Portland, and Toronto and Philly, as we both talked about before, both of those series are at 2-2. You're looking at epic second rounds here. Tonight's going to go a long way to see not just how this playoff is going to unfold, but just this round. And I know that the NBA is praying, hands and knees, for not only the Celtics to win tonight, but also what's going to happen in Houston with the Rockets. And they got back into the series there Saturday night behind James Harden's 41. And the Rockets, we know they can play with the Warriors. We talked about the game one last week. Game two, obviously, went the Warriors' way. And when you look at how these two teams match up. It's weird. Because both of these teams, as we all know, they can shoot the lights out of the ball. Warriors have more shooters. Chris Paul's not the same player. Eric Gordon has stepped up. But you wonder when it comes down to crunch time. We all know it's going to be James Harden. We get that. And for the most part, it's going to be Kevin Durant on the Warriors side. Not breaking any news there. But the reason why I bring that up is because you wonder... 
down the stretch of these games, it's always going to be that secondary guy. And it's funny because when you look at the Warriors, you figure, oh, wait, they got Curry, they got Thompson. Right, we get that. And with the Warriors, you could say Eric Gordon or Chris Paul. I don't think Chris Paul anymore. But to me, that's what it's going to boil down to, especially tonight. Because Harden's going to do whatever it takes. And I can't stand that step back three. I see it all the time. And I remember when it was brought up, I guess last year, during his MVP run, how that's a walk. And it's a walk. I mean, come on. That three that he had before the layup at the end of the game in the overtime, you know, he takes that one step to the right and then he takes the jump back for two more steps and then he chucks his three. I mean, that's a walk. You only allow two steps. Last I checked. Is that right? So now, to me, again, it's going to boil down to who is going to be the other guy other than Harden that's going to deliver his team home. Because you know on the... Warriors side, who can be there at any given moment? And Steph Curry, who had an embarrassing play at the end of the game the other night and shot terribly on Saturday night. And Curry's the type of guy, he could go 0 for 50 in the game, but you just give him that one inch and he's going to take it and he can make it if Durant isn't there. Just like Clay Thompson could do the same. And that's what you got to look at here with this Warrior team, besides Harden. There has to be somebody else. I don't believe in Chris Paul. To me, he's a little bit long in the tooth. We understand he's a bulldog. He's a guy that's going to fight to the end, but does he still have it in him anymore? I don't know. And Eric Gordon, we understand that he's been a very productive player and could certainly take and make that shot, but have we seen that in a big moment? And that's what it's going to boil down to in the in this series because these games are tooth and nail. These games are pretty much going right down to the wire and if somehow some way Harden's not going to be able to take that shot who is I understand the Rockets they need to have a rocking chair type of game tonight you know they need to hit like 53's in the game they need to win going away just so they could kind of take a deep breath because these games for as intense and as tough as they've been we all know it's not going to last they could play four, five, six games in this series or even a seventh and they could be tooth and nail and they could win and move on. And I'm sure it could do a lot for their, not only just for their mental makeup, but for the organization. Wow, we finally beat the Warriors and granted that they're going to go down a rung as far as town is concerned. But when you live and die like that, chances are you're going to look closer to your death than you're going to see yourself living longer. And as we know, the Rockets, they're that type of team. They live and die by the three. And if they can't seem to win or can't seem to continue to knock down those big shots, all they got to do is look back to last year Game 7 against the Warriors. I mean, that's all you need to know about this team. So fascinating games tonight. I hope they, I hope all these series go seven games. Why not? The NBA needs it. They had a real bad first round. And... Obviously, there'll be a lot more to talk about if these series go deeper and as we move on to the next round, the conference finals, as we're already there pretty much. Well, not really. We still have a few games. I'm thinking more NHL because that's going to be the next thing I discuss. So, basketball fans, rejoice. It's been a great second round so far, and we only hope to have these series evened up after tonight 
between the Bucks and Celtics and Warriors Rockets. Let's see if anything else I need to touch on here before I move on. Oh, I know Danny Ainge, he had the mild heart attack there during game two. Or sometime, at some point during the game on uh, Tuesday. I hear he's recovering nicely, what's good for him. I understand when you look at that kind of basketball, the way it was uh, performed there, especially in that third quarter, give anybody that. But jokes aside, uh, you know, I hope he's doing well. And for all the reports that you've read, that uh, he's certainly doing a lot better. Uh, yeah, that pretty much uh, does it for the NBA. Let's move on to the NHL. As the Stanley Cup playoffs are now looking to make that turn into the conference final. Where tonight you have the Bruins looking to wrap up their series in Columbus as they took the lead on their series. And had a very good game four. They started off fast. Led to nothing. Stopped the penalty shot in the process. I understand they gave a power play goal after that. But then they were able to pretty much cruise from there. Had the victory there Saturday, and then now could go ahead and move on to a conference final with a win against the Blue Jackets tonight. And San Jose is looking to do the same as uh, they have a 3-2 series lead. The scene shifting over to Denver with the Lance, who have certainly had a very good postseason run here to this point, will now try to stave off elimination and push that to a Game 7. And you also have a Game 7 Tomorrow, between Dallas and St. Louis, where St. Louis on the road, give them credit, win in Dallas in a game where they absolutely had to have the win or they would have gone home. So St. Louis will now host the Game 7. And as, as you see all the time, there's like Game 7's all over the place in the NHL. I understand you got the sweeps in the first round with Tampa and Pittsburgh exiting stage right. But speaking of sweeps, uh, it doesn't get any more disappointing if you're an Islander fan to be able to take care of the Penguins the way you did and responded in the way they did, where if Pittsburgh had a goal, they came right back. Or even look at game one, where Pittsburgh scored a goal with about a minute or so to go, and then they won in the overtime. And if that was any any indication of how the series was going to go, well, it certainly was the case. Jordan Everly, obviously, as we all know, had a great series. But now in this series, I mean, what could you say? Last week I came on and I talked about how they did not get any of the breaks, any of the bounces their way, and they didn't. Hitting posts and crossbars and not getting the, the right amount of breaks. And to me, that just trickled down into the final two games of the series. You look at the game three, the one thing that's going to stick out the most is Robin Leonard. I mean, what was he doing on that? Yeah, Thomas Hickey coming back saying, you even hear him saying, help, help, right behind him. So he pushes the puck forward, it gets deflected, and the next thing you know, Justin Williams, who's Johnny on the spot, and that guy is just a money player. That guy, for whatever the reason, he's always getting big goals. Obviously, he got the biggest goal of the game there with about nine minutes to go, third period, as he was able to one-time it over the shoulder of Robin Leonard. They took a 3-2 lead. They got two other empty net goals at the end, and that was pretty much it for the Islanders. And then what could you say about game four? They get an early power play goal. All right, you're thinking, all right, this is what they needed. But the funny thing is, is that when you're down 0-3 or even down in any series and everybody's going to say the first goal is key, it's not even the first goal. To me, it's the first two goals. Because when you're on the road and you need a life preserver, sometimes that one life preserver isn't enough. 
You need the life preserver and the rope to pull you to the boat in hopes to be clear and hopefully you'll end up surviving that way. So the islanders did get the life preserver, the goal, but then before you know it, somebody put a pin in it because the Hurricanes then got a power play and Sebastian Ajo gets a goal a little more than two minutes after that. So they even it up. And then you could pretty much turn your sets off there to use the immortal words of Warner Wolf. Where in the third period, at two goals, 66 seconds apart, Tivo Taravainen, who I'm just sick and tired of looking at, I mean, that guy has just come up with big goal after big goal. And then, dare I say, Johnny on the spot again. Justin Williams, who had the power play goal, who made it 1-1. I forgot to mention that. Because after the Islanders started off with that lead, as I mentioned, the proverbial life rafter goal, or life preserver goal, Justin Williams sides with the power play. But then uh, Teravainen and then Greg McKeague had a goal 66 seconds later, and that was it. Because to me, once the Islanders were going to be down two goals in this game, there was no turning back. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, they gave up, or they quit, didn't show up, whatever you want to call it. To me, that's not the case. But what, when you have a team that's down in the series and then on the road that's pretty much skating downhill after tying the game, then taking the lead, and then 66 seconds later making it a two-goal game, forget it. And what could you say? It just As I sit here and just thinking about the, the past couple of weeks, and as I said at the top, for them to sweep the Penguins the way they did, and that was unexpected, I certainly did not expect this coming. I thought Carolina was their equal. Carolina has a lot of lunch pail type players. Give them credit, tip your hat. And the Islanders are now facing an offseason where they need a sniper in the worst way. And the irony of all ironies, the one player that they could have used in the series was John Tavares. I mean, let's face it. He was a guy that the Islanders needed to say, all right, guys, it's time. We're down 0-2. We were this close to evening up the series and maybe having a 2-0 series lead on our own. Jump on my back and let's go. And he didn't have that. Anders Lee, the captain, we understand he's a blood and guts guy. He can score goals, but he's not that type of player. You're asking too much from Matthew Barzal and Jordan Eberle, who had a great opening series and certainly had the opposite here. The Islanders need to get a sniper. They need a bona fide goal scorer. How are they going to do that? Remains to be seen. Those are questions that will take place late June into July. And that's your eye on the season. Uh, Just as bitter as it gets. And I'm not going to sit here and say what could have been because they got swept. It wasn't as if they lost a tough seven-game series. But when you start off that way and then end it off in that fashion, it uh, it just makes you shake your head. Uh, what, could it, I mean, what could you say? So that's what you got with the NHL. Just want to make sure I got everything covered. Oh, and lastly, yeah. Did the layoff hurt? I know a couple people have reached out to me and said, oh, that's what happens when you had a 10-day layoff. I said this last week. The Islanders could have had a 2-0 series lead or at minimum 1-1, especially when you look at game two and how that unfolded. So to me, that had nothing to do with a layoff. I could see if they had the layoff and then Carolina just blitzed them out of the rink. 
You know, they won in uh, Barclays, you know, 5-1 and 6 nothing. where I could say, oh, geez. You know, what were they doing the last 10 days? Were they off in the Bahamas? I mean, what, what's going on? But that certainly wasn't the case. They were in those games. And let's face it, they were also in game three, too. It was 2-2 midway through the third. They had chances as well. They weren't able to capitalize. And again, on a backup goalie at that, Peter Morazic was nowhere to be found after game two. And they weren't able to muster up a threat, let alone a win. So the layoff had nothing to do with it. And I get that. I look at layoffs as just as something where you, in the back of your mind, you have to factor in as far as how a team performs. But to, to me, that had nothing to do with it. I thought they were fine. They just did not get the bounce. They didn't get any of the breaks, and that's why they got swept in the series. All right, let's uh, – should we go to baseball? Yeah, let's do that. Baseball, and then I'll touch on the Kentucky Derby as well as what happened Saturday night with the Canelo Alvarez-Daniel Jacobs fight. Yeah, I'm going to get into that a little bit. But anyway, baseball. All right, Mets fans, get ready because this is not going to be pretty. It's certainly not going to be flattering. And I'm going to start it. I, this is going to sound doom and gloom. I get that. And we understand that the Mets, it's only May 6th. But when you look at what's taking place with this team right now, and you see that after a 5-1 and one start, since then the Mets are 11-17. and 17. They haven't been able to muster any type of winning streak despite the fact that they have arguably the top four starters on one pitching staff in baseball. And all you have to do is look at the games last Wednesday and Thursday to kind of digest and say, I don't know how this is going to go. Meaning, yes, can the offense turn around and play and perform the way they did the first three weeks of the season? Or now that the league is starting to catch up with some of these players and some of them are just aren't any good, that we're looking at just the impending futility of an offense that went on vacation last May and June of 2018. Could this be happening all over again in 2019? So let me expound. When you look at last Wednesday and Thursday, where Jacob DeGrom finally got back to his first two starts of the year as opposed to those middle three starts, where he tossed seven innings, three hits. Okay, Jake was back, feeling good. But the Met offense not only was out to lunch, but uh, was taking a coffee break, a smoke break. They weren't able to score any runs. All right, so they lose a one nothing game. So be it. The next day, Noah Syndergaard, who he needs to, as I said last week, I got on his case and needs to get his head out of his rear end, did just that, but to the point where complete game shutout, nine strikeouts. He's the first guy in 36 years to pitch a one nothing shutout where the only run in the game was on a home run by the pitcher. All right, so you're feeling good. They needed that game in the worst way before they go on this trip to Milwaukee and San Diego. But then you say to yourself, where is the offense? Noah did everything. He pulled the rabbit out of the hat. He sliced the girl in half, opened up the casket. You didn't see it and put it back together. Yeah, he did everything. So they go to Milwaukee. 
And if it wasn't for the heroics of Peter Alonso or Pete Alonso in the ninth inning to put that game in the extra innings where the Mets and Brewers played another game, another nine innings, Mets scored at the top of the 18th, and then Chris Flexen, and I can't put it all on him, but who came in in the 17th and pitched well, was unable to do that in the 18th. And then yesterday they had a scratch and claw to two, two runs and lose 3-2 as they lose five out of six to the Brewers in the last two weekends and go on to San Diego where they have Jake and Noah back-to-back to start this off and then Steven Matz on Wednesday. Oh, wait a second. Steven Matz now has issues with his forearm to the point where I wouldn't be surprised not to say he's going to go on the IL, but he may skip a start. This is where, let's insert now 2018 to 2019. This is where we start to wonder about this team that has no starting pitching depth. Jason Vargas, who, shockingly, I understand he can only get to four innings, barely five, but is, for him, has pitched well here in his last three outings. He has a hamstring issue that he's dealing with, so who knows when he's going to come back. This offense, Brandon Nimmo, he's now under the Mendoza line, and he's on the interstate. Todd Frazier, I get he has a good glove, but he's batting 146. 146. That's right. He hit that grand slam, I think, in one of his first couple games he came back. And since then, he's in absolutely zero. Robinson Cano, who started off slow. We get it. He was actually under the Mendoza line. But then streaked to the point where he was up to about 275. Then he gets hit in one hand, gets hit in the other, and now he's back to 240. The team, for whatever the reason, has just has not been able to hit in the clutch other than Alonzo's home run. Jeff McNeil, who's hitting 350 unbelievably, and I understand a lot of these averages went down for Saturday night, unlike Ryan Braun, who had six hits. But this Met team and this Met offense, for whatever the reason, and I get you could say this with a lot of baseball teams, but they seem to go ice cold at the same time. Nobody's hitting. Yeah, you're getting a few hits from guys here, there, whatever, Rosario, but then he can't field the ground ball anymore. I mean, what happened to that? All of a sudden, he's Steve, he's Steve Sachs, circa 1988-89. And I haven't even gone to the bullpen. Conforto's averages dropped. I didn't even mention him. What is he down to now, 240, 245? And I haven't gone to the bullpen where Diaz, he righted the ship in Milwaukee a little bit, but he gave up. Back-to-back home runs on Monday and Wednesday to the Reds and one to uh, Jose Iglesias. I mean, please. And I'm not going to kill him for that because he's been well. I mean, he's been fine so far. He's the only saving grace in that bullpen. Familiar, who's on the IL now with shoulder, an issue with his shoulder. He's just been god-awful. And this Met team, I, I, I can't even put in the words, or at least into clean words. And who knows, one of these days... With the way the Mets and the way the Islanders played and now the Celtics, I mean, I came in in just in a very angry mood. I'm surprised I haven't gone off the rails and started cursing left and right. But this Met team is now making me wonder, what is this Met team? What is it? Is it strength in the starting pitching? Yeah, I guess you could still say that, but it hasn't really shown on a consistent level. Is their offense, are they going to be a type of team where they're going to score five 
runs a game, or are they just going to be a team that's going to tease you like they normally do and have been for many years? Their bullpen, you can forget about it. They have no starting pitching depth. You got to rely on the Drew Gagnos, the Tim Petersons, the possibly going to be called up Hector Santiago's of the world, Chris Flexen. Uh, listen, I'm not trying to say that they have to have you know nine starting pitchers on this team. But look at the Yankees. The Yankees are a walking mash unit. James Paxton's down the IL with a knee issue. But Domingo Herman comes in and he's like Luis Severino 2.0. And he's got six wins already. I don't know, I don't know what else to say about this team other than that if they don't snap out of it, and San Diego's been a very good team. They had a walk-off grand slam in a game against the Dodgers yesterday. Historically, in that ballpark, the Mets do not play well at Petco. But with Jake and Noah going, can we get two out of three? Is it that much to ask for? And then you come home, you play the Marlins, and the Marlins are the worst team in baseball. And granted, that 5-1 and one start, three of those wins were a sweep down in Miami. Okay. But it's interesting because watch the Mets win two out of three. They'll come home, and they'll play down to the Marlins, and they'll lose two out of three. And the Marlins, at times, have been a thorn in the Mets' side. So it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that they'll come in here and win two out of three, and they've won nine games all year. Which Met team is going to show up? What Met, What is this Met team? What is it? And here we are now, 34 games in, and we still don't know. Is there anything else I need to add about this? Yeah, Jake, no. Just make it sure because... Oh, and you know what? Here we go. Last but not least, after that diatribe for about, I don't know, six or seven minutes, whatever how long it was, you know what the crazy thing about this is? And this is the saving grace as of right now, May 6th. That could change a month from now. Who knows? It could probably change a week from now. Is that no one has run away in this division. Now, they're three and a half, four in a loss to Philly. But Philly, they are already booing Bryce Harper last week. After dropping a fly ball and going over four with two strikeouts. So the over-under, if you had the over, you actually would have won. Because I think I picked May 1st and it happened May 2nd. But no one has run away yet. But guess what? With the way this Mets team is playing, all it's going to take is a good two weeks, or bad two weeks, I should say, in this case. And then the Mets will be seven out. And then the Mets will be ten out. And then here we are. It's the All-Star break. And it's another lost season. And I get people could say, Jay Reels, come on, May 6th. Right, they're only three and a half back. But as I said before, they're 11-17 and 17 since that 5-1 and one start. They're going to San Diego right now. And yes, with Jake and Noah on the mound. But can we get some offense, please? Could somebody score some runs? And even with Miami, and then the following week, they go to Washington and Miami. And both of those teams, again, we talked about Miami. Washington hasn't played well either. But they are division foes that they should be taken care of. What makes me think that over the course of the next two weeks that they're going to right the ship and all of a sudden have a four, five, six-game winning streak. You haven't seen that. You have not seen that with this team this year. Because even in that 5-1 start, remember, they started 2-0, then they lost, and they won the next three. Then after that, it's been win, loss, win, loss, win, win, loss, 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 win, 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 loss. And right now, they've lost three in a row. They've lost four or five. And I've said enough. I'm just, I'm getting sick just thinking about it. Anyway, let's go to the Yankees real quick. Yankees, on the other hand, they're losing players by the second. And they're still pitching. They're getting 
timely hitting. Hitting from people that nobody ever heard of. Michael Talkman. I understand he had a homer against the White Sox in that 8-0 game a few weeks back. But he gets the big hit yesterday in the 4-1 win. <coughs> Excuse me. In a uh, rain-shortened game. Herman, as I mentioned before, Luis Severino 2.0. And with that being said, Severino's not going to come back after the All-Star break as per Brian Cashman the other day. And he has that lat issue. I wonder if it's the same thing that Noah Syndergaard had, remember when he injured it in Washington on April 30th? And you didn't see him until September. So this is what happened with Severino. I'm sure he probably has the same exact injury that Syndergaard had. So you're looking until after the All-Star break, which could be a boost for the Yankees if he's healthy. And why not? I also mentioned about Paxton being on the IL. CC had his 3,000 strikeout, as you saw last week. They did lose those two games in Arizona. But they bounced back nicely, winning two out of three over the weekend. Clint Fraser is supposed to be active today. So you may see him in the lineup tonight as they host Seattle for four games. Miguel Andujar, you look at him and his situation with the rotator cuff. They're saying that it doesn't need surgery, that he can play through it. He's been back in the lineup as a designated hitter. But you would think in due time, he's probably going to get to third base once everybody starts getting back in the mix once Judge is back, Giancarlo, etc. Because he's not going to DH the rest of the year if everybody's going to start getting healthy. And you know Gary Sanchez is going to need some days where he's going to DH. Sanchez, of course, has been hitting the cover off the ball. And I even mentioned that in the baseball preview. If you hadn't listened to that, I said one of the three key reasons for the Yankees to have success this year, I, I didn't think they're going to be dropping like flies as far as from a health standpoint is concerned. But when you look at Gary Sanchez and what he went through last year, not only defensively, but he batted 190. So here he is, 11 home runs. He's batting 271. I don't think you have to worry about him getting even close to batting near the Mendoza line. So he certainly have come back in a good way. And he certainly is exactly what the Yankees need right now, considering that they don't have a lot of firepower in that offense. I know Luke Voigt had a tremendous trip last week. I didn't mention him last week week on the podcast out in Arizona, uh, out in Anaheim and in San Francisco. And the Yankees are 19 and 14. And all their key guys are out of the lineup. Batances is another one who's not going to come back until probably June. Giancarlo could be close. He may be playing in some spring training or minor league games to say spring training because it's kind of like an extended spring training considering he's been on the shelf since April Fool's Day. So the Yankees are going to get healthy. And to think at 19 and 14, you would think if they were 16 and 18, if they had the Met record, at least you could understand why. They're 19 and 14. And here they are, still second place. They're still behind the Rays and have a very interesting series. I can't even believe I'm saying that. With the Rays this coming weekend. So the Yankees have forward Seattle, who have cooled off since their big star. I think they were 11 and 2, now they're 19 and 17. But you would think those games should be Pretty competitive. And then you look at this weekend where they go to Tampa for the first time and play the race for the first time so they can measure each other to see how they fare in the AL East in this early season. So Yankee fans, I'm sure, hey, you're rejoicing, you're jumping for joy, all that, and rightfully so because you're getting healthy despite losing Paxton, but you're getting Frazier back. You may get Giancarlo back. Judge, who knows, but... Everything is bright and sunny in the Bronx where when you look out in Flushing, yeah, it's like the Adams family. 
And the cloud just seems to be hovering over, I'm not going to say it yet, but City Field. But if you listen to this podcast, especially going back to last year, there's another term that I have for that uh, ballpark. So, uh, Quickly, the other story in baseball, the Cubs, as they finish sweeping the St. Louis Cardinals. Now remember, they started off 2-7. and seven. And they didn't have, you know, they played all those games on the road to start the season. Two and seven, you're thinking, oh, geez. And I thought the Cubs were going to have a phenomenal year this year. That's what I thought. Well, guess what? They went from worst to first in 30 days as they're now atop the NL Central. And kudos to them. I understand their pitching. I know Kyle Hendricks had a game the other day for the ages 81 pitches and a complete game shutout. I think that was a game on Friday, which was an old school type of performance. But Cubs, I think they're going to be fine. Cubs have that young talent, especially on their uh, their day-to-day lineup. Pitching, I know they have Lester and guys that certainly aren't going to blow you away, but they have a lot of guile. You know, like I mentioned, Kyle Hendricks and you Darvish. You know, a lot of people they're going to look at you Darvish as the guy many years ago with Texas, but we understand he's going to be a guy that he still has his powerful fastball, but he's going to be more finesse. But do you think the Cubs are going to be there at the end? And I think they will. So props to them and getting themselves right in the ship and getting back to the uh, top of the NL Central. All right, quickly, let me wrap up with these two things. The Derby. Now, I'm going to start off by saying this. Uh, I understand I'm a, it's a sport. It's been around just as long as baseball's been in and boxing when you look at this country. Horse racing. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. I just report what I see or what I've heard, et cetera, et cetera. I got to start off by saying it's gotten a lot of bad press. You've, I'm sure you've heard about what took place in Santa Ana over the winter where they had to slaughter these horses, which is just right there. They should just close the sport down. I mean, and I get people can say, Jerry Reels, who are you to stop horse racing? Ah, of course, I'm just a guy that host a podcast every week. I get that. But at the same time, when you just hear, and that's just in Santa Ana, what's going on in other racetracks throughout the country or even overseas for that matter. And, you know, I'm not going to stand here and say I'm, uh, I work for PETA and I'm this animal activist, but let's face it. When you see what's going on and how these horses are being handled, I mean, geez, how can anybody watch the sport, let alone root for the sport? But with that being said, it's taken a lot of flack here, and rightfully so, and it's either going to take more flack, considering what happened there on Saturday in Lexington when Churchill Downs, when you had a horse and maximum security win, but then after 22 minutes where you had the three, there weren't even judges, I can't remember, I, I'll just say the judges for right now, that they said, uh-uh, we have to overrule this, there was an interference there, at the turn where maximum security was too close to war will the other horse and even though it won by a few lengths but we deemed that as being a hindrance to the performance of the horse so therefore we have to give the winner to a 65 to 1 odd horse in country house where maximum security has appealed they're not even going to go to the preakness and as I said, with Country House being a 65-1 to 1 odds on Saturday, chances are this horse is not going to see a triple crown. And right now you have a black eye for a sport that for the first time in the history of the 145-year Kentucky Derby, 
you had a winner disqualified. Now, I, I believe in 1968 you had a DQ with one horse, but that was due to a drug violation. This didn't have anything to do with the result of the race. So now you're going to have, you, or you have all this talk of appealing. You have this talk of the controversy not only surrounding this race, but everything that's going on in the horse racing community. You have the controversy of the three judges that they didn't even face the media. They just released a statement, and that was it. They walked away. And I guess they're taking the same type of caution that they would do for Major League Baseball. Because think about it. But baseball, you can't even speak to the umpires. And I believe the same in the NBA, NHL. These officials never speak. Well, the referees, they never speak. NFL, oh, geez. When you look at what happened, Saints-Rams. I believe there was a statement released. I understand Sean Payton got in the room and tried to get more of an explanation, whatever it may be. But yeah, these referees, they're not going to come out and say anything unless they review it and then they come back and they'll say, oh, we're sorry for the poor call. Or So as much as you want to kill those three judges, and rightfully so because people want answers and they want to hear why did they make that change, but they're just not going to do it. Just look at the other sports. So all I can say to this is did Maximum Security get a raw deal here? Probably. Because how many other times in the history, not only of this race, but in horse racing, where other horses interfere? I mean, that's just, that's just how it is. I mean, what could you say? All the, for, all the horses are going to be close to one another, and God forbid when you get those spills, and, oh, uh, geez, thankfully you don't see many of those like you once did. But even then, that's why, to me, the sport, and I get it's Americana, and I get it's an event, and it's one of the biggest events of the sports calendar, the run of the roses, the first Saturday of May, but... If horse racing left right now, would I miss it? Absolutely not. In fact, I'd be grateful and thankful. But, again, who am I to say that? I'm sure there are other people. Maybe I'm in the minority. Maybe I'm not. But to me, despite the fact that this race, a lot of people look at as the, I'm not going to say the beginning of summer, but when people look at that first Saturday in May, it's almost as if, all right, Flowers are blooming. The weather is much better. You don't have to worry about these chilly days. Well, at least not in New York. Oh, geez. New York, yesterday's weather. I don't even get into that. But but if they would have banned this sucker altogether, then, hey, listen, where do I sign up? I'm all for it. And then lastly, with the boxing. Now, for those who've listened, and I haven't talked much about boxing, but I've just abandoned it many years ago. As we all know, the sport's as corrupt as it's as long as it's been. We get that. And I understand from one guy that I know, I don't even know if he listens to the podcast. He may or may not, but my guy Jimmy, just reading some of his comments, I know he's a huge boxing buff, but saying that Daniel Jacobs, he had a 7-4 going into the final round, that, oh, boxing's a joke. Jimmy, you've been watching the sport forever. You shouldn't be surprised at anything that happens in the sport. You shouldn't. And I didn't watch the fight. A lot of people had it. Canelo winning. Unanimous. I know it's going to be too late to watch it after the fact. But the reason why I bring this up is because I think, and maybe just for the sake of the podcast, it shouldn't be a thing. It should be more of a thing where I will. I will get into boxing a little bit more. Just like the same with MMA. 
to take an old adage, if MMA was playing in my backyard, I'd draw the blinds. I couldn't, I mean, to me, it's just too barbaric. It's, I, I just find nothing appealing. But I get the, the younger folks and this younger generation's into it. I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, I'm going to be into it by next week. I'm going to know everything from pill to post about the UFC. But the point of the matter is, is that it's a sport that obviously it's talked about a lot more than boxing. But the reason why I bring up boxing is because there are a lot of young studs that are coming up the ranks. Now, who they're going to fight remains to be seen. But, you know, when you're looking at guys like Anthony Joshua, who's been very impressive so far, Errol Spence, you know, Mikey Garcia, who's had 39 fights and 39 KOs. Everybody knows about Triple G. Of course, Canelo. The other, uh, Lomachenko. I mean, you have guys that at least you could... Look at the sport and say, hey, as bad as it's been over the years, as much as it's fallen from grace, because boxing, let's face it, it has as much tradition and history as just about any other sport in this country. Maybe not baseball, but it has just as much as football and basketball, if not more. And knowing that you got some guys that are coming up the ranks, I need to pay more attention, and I want to pay more attention because I love boxing. I mean, growing up in the late 70s, 80s, into the 90s, I mean, that's all we look forward to, those Saturday night fights, and I could go through the whole list of them. But it's been, to me, in the last dozen to 15 years, it's been a joke, and I could care less. And forget about the way they're officiated and the scoring and all that. I mean, that's gone on since the beginning of time, so I'm not even going to go there. But to me, I find nothing appealing. Just think, three years ago, the biggest fight in the last... 10 years was Floyd Mayweather fighting a guy who was an MMA fighter. And the fight wasn't that bad, believe it or not. It's just that Conor McGregor ran out of gas. You know, it wasn't a terrible fight. But that's just how the sport, that's just how bad it's fallen. But now it's seeming, it's kind of sort of trying to get its legs again. And you know what? Moving forward, the next fight, even UFC, I'll pay a little bit more mind to it. Not only just for, I don't want to be that guy, the old cranky, crusty, traditional guy, the get off my lawn type of guy. No, I'm going to look at this more for you guys with an open heart, open mind to watch, to follow, etc. And not only that, and I do, because this is why I'm here. I'm here to deliver sports in any way, shape, form, or fashion. To give you my opinions, my thoughts, my everything. All right, my good people. I almost forgot. Yes, it took a few more hours later in the day. I'm sure the recording is going to be a little bit off from what you heard earlier. But the hero and zero of the week. Look at that. It took one week for J Reels to forget the final part of my podcast, which is what I'm trying to do each and every week or want to establish, is adding a hero and zero of the week. I know it may be a little hokey. I know it may be a little gimmicky, but... I figured what a good way to end off a podcast by me detailing who I think was the one guy to put up on that pedestal. Maybe it's a little too strong, but put up as a hero and then the zero, enough said. Let's cut right to it. My hero of the week is a guy who's not even playing anymore. My hero of the week is Felipe Lopez. If you saw the documentary, The Dominican Dream, and especially if you lived in New York City at that time, this was a guy that from 1991 to 94 was as big as not only anything in the city, 
but in the basketball universe. And right, people may say, well, calm down, Jay Reels. Michael Jordan was playing in that era. We know what the Bulls did, especially in that uh, 91 to 93 run when they won the first of their three championships. But here was a guy that a lot of people compared to Michael Jordan. And this was before social media. This is before anything that was taking place on this planet today. Any type of news media outlets that certainly would descend upon Rice High School, which is where he played in Harlem, being from the Bronx through by way of Dominican Republic. But here's a guy who, let's face it, a lot of people anointed as the next big thing, as we all know, didn't turn out to be that way. But considering what he's done since then, he has been not only a person who has given back, he is not only a person who did win a championship, albeit in Dominican Republic, but he's not only a champion in basketball, but he's a champion in life because of what he's done and the service that he's providing, not only to his people down in the Dominican, but also here in New York City. And by that, he's by far, not even just the hero of the week, he's probably the hero of the year in that regard. And I understand it may be some strong words, but in this day and age, when you look at how athletes either A, they waste their fortunes away, or B, become a person that's out of the spotlight. Here's a guy that's out of the spotlight and has certainly risen to the occasion as far as just being a good model citizen. So my hero of the week goes to him. And as far as my zero of the week is concerned, that goes to the Cincinnati Reds, Jesse Winker. Here's a guy who's done nothing in his baseball career. And I get he was having some fun with the City Field fans last week when the Reds were in town to play the Mets. But here he was on two occasions, Monday night hitting the game-winning homer off Edwin Diaz as he's circling the bases, waving to the crowd, dancing with Joey Votto right out a couple of steps from the dugout. And then, to make matters worse, on Wednesday night, here he is catching the final out of the game and doing the same thing, waving to the crowd. Of course, a booze comes down. But we got the last laugh, considering that on Thursday, in the ninth inning, as he struck out twice against Noah Syndergaard, and here he is arguing balls and strikes. In this particular case, it was a strike that was questionable. Let's face it, as I was watching it live, I thought to myself, I said, ooh, that's a little iffy. But then he gets tossed out of the game, bitches and moans, and the City Field fans wave him goodbye. And we're not going to see him at all for the rest of this year, considering that the Reds' only trip to City Field was last week. But good riddance, because here's a guy that I guess he was trying to make himself a name of some sort, maybe a little bit of a villain, and he certainly did that. But he uh, concluded his uh, stay here in New York by being serenaded with booze and waves as well. So guess what? He gets the zero of the week. And one last thing I'm going to add before uh, we get to the final segment, and that's saying goodbye. I just finished watching the Boston Celtics get annihilated by Giannis Antetokounmpo, and I figured that this is just a little extra bonus to be added in. Of course, I recorded the earlier part of the program this uh, later this uh, or earlier this morning, I should say. And now, with the Celtics down three games to one, this series, for all intents and purposes, is over. Houston and Golden State are playing right now, where Houston's up at the current moment, ten to six. But with, as far as the Celtics are concerned, and we'll get to this next Monday on the podcast. Everything that took place last year has now come to this game five, just being one step away from the finals. A whole offseason where you were getting back Kyrie Irving and also Gordon Hayward. And now they're 48 minutes away from saying goodbye 
to an NBA season where, let's face it, just about everybody had penciled them in to be the Eastern Conference champion and representing the East to play in an NBA final against the more likely opponent in the Golden State Warriors. And without getting much deeper into it, all I'll say is this. What's going to happen this offseason remains to be seen. One guy that could be on that list of free agents is Al Horford. And not only that, we all know about Kyrie Irving. I will say this at the present moment. Until the season is officially done, which chances are will be Wednesday night in Milwaukee, it won't be until then, and chances are until next Monday, which I'll get into what I feel about Kyrie Irving and about the Celtics' chances moving forward as they look into a long, deep, lost summer. And with that, it does conclude this recent edition or this latest edition of the podcast. With that being said, people, I hope that you go out there. If there's one thing I ask you to do, to go out there and please participate in subscribing to this podcast, whether it's on Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, of course. Because all that's going to do, the more you subscribe, the more you leave a rating, post a review, just say, hey, J Reels, you're a riot. Or J Reels, I got to get my Monday fix. And yes, I do want to add more podcasts as the week goes on. As a matter of fact, I might do a poll on my Instagram page, which I'll get to in a second. But let's go, people. Go out there. Please subscribe, review, do all that stuff because that's just going to increase the visibility of this podcast amongst the vast sports podcast, sports podcast landscape. Got to say that a few times. And in turn, what that's going to do is hopefully generate more interest with some uh, future guests, whether it be former or even current athletes, I may add, broadcasters, sports writers, you name it. Because that's why I'm here to deliver not only just my opinions, my thoughts, my feelings on sports, but also to get those type of guys on my and girls on my podcast to discuss their experiences, their uh, points of views, etc. And the only way I could do that is to pass on the word to you and to the people that you know that may love sports, follow sports, all that. So I implore you to do that, and please, I'd be forever grateful and thankful for your participation. You can follow me on any of my social media accounts. You want to leave a DM for any questions, comments, criticism, praise, check me out, J Reels on Instagram, J Reels 1, just the number on Twitter, the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook page, and send me an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, I'm going to be a little bit more active, I have to, and consistent. In my social media profile, especially on Instagram, obviously that's the more popular social media account or outlet that's out there right now. I know Facebook's a little washed at this point with everything that's going on with them. Twitter, to a certain degree, yeah. So Instagram, I may put up some polls. I want to get your thoughts, your feelings, not only about the program, but a bunch of other things. So stay tuned for that. And as always, as I deliver everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the j podcast, on the flip, baby.